Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Today's edition of The Literary Life features the great chef Eric Repair. In this wide-ranging conversation with acclaimed radio host and print journalist Carlos Frias, Chef Repair speaks of his friendship with Tony Bourdain, his early influences in the kitchen, and his profound connection with the Dalai Lama. This was recorded live at Books and Books on the publication of Chef Repair's newest book, Seafood Simple, of which he writes, I hope that this book is a source of inspiration and education, encouraging you to cook with confidence and approach seafood with joy and even love. The secret to Seafood Simple is to trust the process and yourself. Chef, thank you so much for, for making this time because it's, it's wonderful to always have a reference book like your books. You know, they're so accessible. And can everybody hear me okay? They, you make them so accessible, but it's, it's another level to make yourself accessible, uh, to kind of hear the stories behind them and hear the stories behind you because I think that's so much, um, so much of how people connect to your work. So thank you. Thank you very much for your kind words. So uh, I guess the, the f first things first, where did you eat? I went to Bouchon. All <laughs> oh, right. That's a smart man, or Thomas Keller's newest restaurant in the, in the Gables. You know, that's a, that was a good move. It was a good move. And I was starving because I was flying from uh, uh, Madison, Wisconsin. Boo. Too cold and, in Madison. And, oh, no, I got and, nothing against Madison. And the food in the plane is not what Thomas Keller does at Bouchon. So <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was, I was really um, starving when I went there. Yeah, <laughs> I'm good now. Oh, Miami, Miami's kind of been a little bit of a. You almost called yourself a local. I think we we spoke like for a story when I was the food editor at the Herald some years back. And you felt like you felt almost like a local because you had a place here for a long time, right? Yes. Or continue it, to. In uh, 1991, we opened Brasserie Locos in Coconut Grove. It yeah, was yes for the ones who remember. Or, uh, we were there from 1991 to 1994, and we left after the hurricane because we ended up with a couple of boats on the roof, and we thought. <laughs> <laughs> Not a good idea. It didn't, didn't, fit, uh, didn't fit with uh, with the decor. Didn't go. But, but uh, uh, Gilbert Lacoste was uh, was Gilbert. He was and his sister were owning the restaurant. She was in the, in the front, and he was uh, the chef and owner. 
and I was doing the back and forth flying from New York and um, um, I spent a lot of time here because it was difficult to open a restaurant in the 90s. You don't say. <laughs> and uh, in Miami, I mean, Miami was still getting its footing as yeah. a restaurant city in 1994. And uh, Miami Beach was starting. Uh, Coconut Grove was still happening and so on. But then I didn't learn my lesson. I came back to, uh, <laughs> to reopen uh, the Raleigh Hotel in, um, in uh, Miami Beach. Uh, when Andre Balaz took over that hotel and also the standard. But I didn't put my name on the door because I was like, don't put, don't, don't, just stay in the back and do the food and that's it. <laughs> well, Gilbert was, uh, was a real inspiration for you in your career, but also in your life, right? Oh, yes, for sure. He was, a, well, he became a dear friend, but he was uh, one of my uh, very important mentors. And he taught me how to... Um, basically manage a big kitchen and how to be creative and how to be um, uh, a good chef. And uh, he, he was the founding chef at, at Le yes, Bernardin? Le Bernardin opened in 1972 in Paris. I was born. <laughs> <laughs> I was seven. <laughs> and then it was such a success. Uh, they, op they decided in 1986 to move from Paris to New York and opened in New York and right away got four stars from the New York Times, which was unheard at the time. New York Times never gave four stars to a, a restaurant that opened. And, um, and, and it's and never lost it. history, but I joined them in 1991. And, and now it's, and, and it's interesting because I think people think of it as your signature restaurant. I mean, it is your signature restaurant. They, it, I think it's, it's almost identified with you more than, it's almost like the history began there for, in a lot of people's minds. Well, after, I mean, 1991, we are 2023. It's a long time. <laughs> and then, yes, of course, people identify with me because uh, I became the ambassador of Le Bernardin by doing cookbooks, by traveling, by cooking for benefits uh, all over the U.S. And, and, and even outside the country and, um, and being in my kitchen every day, uh, lunch and dinner when I'm not traveling, which is a small part of the year when I'm not, I mean, I'm, mostly at Le Bernardin, and traveling a little bit. And for the book, of course, I have a, a little bit of a book tour. It's about two weeks traveling through the U.S. and Canada, and then I'll be back for lunch and dinner until, <laughs> <laughs> until I can't anymore, which uh, hopefully is uh, in many years from now. Right. Well, I, I think, um, you know, you're, you're, the restaurant is such like an achievement right like, i mean to, to maintain four stars in the new york times since since it opened um it's all like beautifully presented high level seafood cuisine and yet this book is is meant to be a simple approach right is is to is a, a way to invite people to get creative with seafood and not be scared of it because i know it, it can be like the scariest things to cook and I will say that, like, uh, my fiance and I, front row here, we, um, we like, it arrived at, my, like, I got it at the house. I brought it home from Books and Books. And she just walked by it, and it was immediately caught her attention. And two of the dishes that we made out of it were two of the best fish dishes that we've made at home, period. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And she's a great cook, but, like, but, like, it was not, it was not brain surgery. Like, it was not, uh, we made a, uh, the salmon poke. 
mean, I'm, I'm, I'm of course biased. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really good. It requires it requires no no heat, uh, which was like, all right, that's a good way to start. Uh, and then we made a uh, the Branzino uh, dish with the uh, with the citrus oil uh, over the top and the yes. tomatoes. And what's interesting about that is there's there's a you had said that if you can't get if you can't get fresh fish, it's better to get a gr a, a piece of flash frozen fish to cook with than to use questionable uh, for sure questionable quote unquote fresh fish. Absolutely. And we used frozen brands. You know, it turned out amazing. And so I guess so. There's a long way of saying. Talk to me about about that idea about creating dishes that even using some frozen fish and one where it's you're applying no heat at all, you're making something that people can access. Yes. So to begin, um, speaking about simplicity, the style of Le Bernardin is about simplicity because when you cook seafood, as you know, seafood is very um, subtle in flavors. It's uh, very subtle in, in, in the way that you have to, to cook it and take care of it and the flesh is very delicate. So a lot of people are intimidated by by cooking fish and seafood in general. And um, I wanted to do this book because I hear so many times people saying, oh, no, we don't like seafood. Oh, no, we, we don't cook seafood because it's too difficult. And I'm thinking, it's not rocket science. I mean, I, I know for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what is very important, it's to know a couple of basics. And what is key, uh, it's to when you choose the products. When you go to the store, you have to know when the fish is fresh or when the fish is not fresh. And so we give you some tips in the book, of course. Uh, but you can buy in a store fish that is whole and you can buy fish that is in filet. And it's a couple of tricks that really um, give you information about it. And that will be the success of your uh, cooking. Because if you start with mediocre ingredients, even if you are a genius, you can imagine at the end it's mediocre. So when you buy fish in filet, the filet should be kind of translucid, the flesh of the filet, kind of translucid. If you touch it with your finger, do not hesitate to put your fingers on the fish. I do it every day and it's fine. They, won't get, they, won't, they don't get mad at you. But if you have a fingerprint in it, it's not a good sign. Oh, the, that's a the, good tip. The flesh should rebound. Uh, so translucid, the flesh should rebound. And then the ultimate test is to smell it. And fish doesn't smell like fish. Fresh fish smell like high tide, not low tide. <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it's what it is. If you buy fish uh, whole, it's other ways to find out if it's fresh or not. You look at the eyes. And if the eyes are very vibrant, it's a good sign. Sometimes you see kind of a white skin on it. Not a good sign. So you look at the gills. So the gills are here behind the ears. I mean, fish don't, don't have ears. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but the gills should be very vibrant, red, ru ruby red. And then same thing, you touch the filet and the flesh should spring back. And then you smell it. And it should be no smell. So when you go to a store, if the, if, or a supermarket, or any place where you go buy your fish, if the store is smelly, it's a bad, bad sign. If the person is dirty, it's a bad sign. <laughs> the fishmonger. 
But then the fish cannot smell like fish. And that will be key because at the end, if you cook fish that is not fresh, you know what's going to happen, right? The house is going to stink. The fish is going to break in your pan. Whatever you're going to be able to grab will be so smelly and fishy. If you have children, they're going to be mad at you. They will... And... and uh, yeah, no, that's... A, that's so yeah, those tips are very important. And it'll smell in your house like that bad fish for three days, and you'll really never want to make it again, so... You have been there, right? Yeah, I've been there. <laughs> I've been there. Uh, but then, also, seafood is very... I mean, and we all know that, but seafood is not all the same. Tuna is very different than salmon, dif very different than halibut, grouper, snapper, scallops, lobster, all shrimp, all of those... Um, different species like to be cooked a certain way. And you can enhance the qualities of those species by using sp specific techniques. So therefore, we, in a book, broke down uh, the book into uh, chapters. So we have a chapter for curing, marinating, so basically making ceviches, uh, steaming, broiling, boiling, baking, roasting, uh, even preserving in, in, in a jar. And uh, those techniques, if you follow the techniques, it's idiot proof, it's guarantee you will have a great recipe of seafood and everybody will be delighted. Boom. Yeah, idiot proof is great because it's fantastic. Thank you. I guess I'm a good, good salesman, right? Yeah, that's, I mean, look, everybody already bought the book, man. You can just oh, yeah, you can calm true. down. Everybody's already yeah. got the book. Let's forget the chapters. <laughs> I want to talk about how you became interested specifically in fish because, I mean, we have another copy of your previous book, which you spoke about, which is your, it's of your eight books, it's the one that's not a cookbook. It is yeah. your person, it is a memoir, 32 Yolks. And it talk, you talk about growing up in the south of France and also in the north of Spain, in the, yes. in the Andorra region. In Andorra, yes. So you're fluent in Spanish. <gasps> He's been hearing you people. He's been hearing everything you've said about him. Uh, talk to me about learning the, f I mean, you've dedicated your life to this particular part of cooking. What, when did it grab your attention? Was it something about growing up then that you first about learned cooking about? cooking seafood or about cooking in general? Well, let's, let's start, let's both, yeah. Where, which one which, do so you want to start with? In general, um, I had a grandmother that was Italian. Another one was from Provence. And they were cooking soul food from their region. Oh, you just, you had the deck stack. Come on. <laughs> and... Uh, it, it was amazing, of course. And I was allowed at four, five years old to go with them to the market, be with them in the kitchen, not touch anything because they didn't want me to mess up anything. And um, I really enjoyed their food and, and the experience of being in the kitchen and going to the market. And my mother was an amazing cook, uh, very inspired by the celebrity chef at the time that created Nouvelle Cuisine. Uh, I'm speaking about Paul Bocuse and Michel Gerard and, and, and those French chefs. Yeah, Paul that were, Bocuse, the, the, the Bocuse, they still have a, you know, a competition named after him, the, the Bocuse d'Or. Yes, that is an international and sorry for butchering that in, in uh, no, no, you didn't. non-French. Uh, and so my mother was doing breakfast, lunch, and dinner for the family. And she was a businesswoman as well. She had, she had a, a real serious job. We were eating lunch and dinner on a different tablecloth with different china pattern. They were drinking different wines. I was too young. But we had appetizer, main course, 
cheese and dessert every day. Not the same from lunch to dinner or from Tuesday to Wednesday. Every day was different. And I thought every kid in the world was, <laughs> was eating like me. I was like, this is... Michelin-starred meals three, day, three times a day. So in between the grandma and, and my mom, I was spoiled. And then I was a very bad student. I had very bad grades because I was reading cookbooks at night. <laughs> and when you read cookbooks, you don't have good grades in math. <laughs> and at 15, I ended up in the principal office with mom. And they told me that was the end of the story for me in school. And I had to find uh, either way a job or, or send me to a vocational school. And I decided, of course, to go to culinary school. I looked sad in the office, but I was delighted and happy. And but, but you had, I, I want to stop there in, in that moment because you, the book is, if you haven't read it, I do recommend it. I don't get any cut of the sales. I'm here for free today. But it's very moving because the you that we see today is this calm, fun, sweet, gentle soul. That's, but That's the wine I had with my friends ah, over there. That's why he's, <laughs> he's flushed. But the, but the Eric Repair in this book is, was, was uh, very, not troubled, but you know, really tough surrounding. You lost your father mm -hmm. at a really formative age, right? Yeah. And and then we're, there was a father, a stepfather in the figure that, that made it a rough growing up for yeah, you. Very abusive. And yes, when I did 30, first of all, Random House, the publisher, was after me for four years to write this memoir. And I decided to do something light and funny and humoristic. And we started the book. And then I went, and I wanted to be very precise in the details, so I micromanage everything in, in, in the book. Every phrase, every word, every comma was micromanaged. And then I, at the end, I said, okay, I have to read the book in one shot, so I know for the editing for tomorrow, so I'm going to read the book in a few hours. And I realized I, I wrote a modern version of Les Miserables. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like... <laughs> I was like, oh my God, what did I do? <laughs> so, well, you're, so you're, 32 Yorks is a bit intense. <laughs> well, your, 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 late friend, your late friend Anthony Bourdain said that he didn't know any of those details, that it read like a Dickens novel. I mean, I kid you not. And, and the thing is, your voice, with the first time I spoke to you was after reading this, and your voice here is crystal clear to, to you today. So it says something. I wanted, yeah, I mean, I'm, I didn't want to lie, but I, I thought was a lot of the stories were funny, but they were not. <laughs> <laughs> they were they were like like dark like the dark gallows kind of kind of humor. Something <laughs> I don't know. So I, I'm curious. So you 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 have this kind of upbringing, and then so how does cooking then really change your life? It ends up yeah. changing your, the trajectory of your life for sure. So I graduate. Uh, culinary school I'm 17 I have good grades actually and I decide I want to work only in a fine dining restaurant only in, a, in, in France in a three star Michelin at the time it was only 18 three star Michelin in France and actually in the world because Michelin didn't exist outside France so I wrote a letter to everybody saying hey I'm American I'm 17 I want to work in your kitchen Nobody sent me a letter back. <laughs> Nobody. And then at the end of the summer, I received a letter from La Tour d'Argent, which was a very, still a very traditional restaurant 
1982, they were celebrating 400-year anniversary of the restaurant. <laughs> That's insane. 400-year anniversary. Amazing. And, and uh, they sent me a letter saying, call us back. We have a job. So I called back, and they said, yeah, we have a job. I said, when do I start? They're like, tomorrow. I was living 1,000 miles away from Paris. Oh, so wow. I, I packed, took an airline ticket, and arrived in Paris at 17 with no, no way, nowhere to go. Um, and started in the kitchen of La Tour d'Argent, specialized in ducks. But of course, I was in a fish station. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and after that, I did all the stations in La Tour d'Argent. But really, I was specialized right away in, in seafood. Then I went to work for a very famous chef in France, Joël Robuchon. You may have heard of him, the late Joël Robuchon. French thought he was God. And um, I, I think he is probably the best chef of, of his generation for sure, and maybe of all chefs. Uh, and I worked with him, and I did, again, the fish station with him. So twice. And then he sent me after, I spent three years with him. I did my, my uh, military duties in between, and I was a waiter. Didn't want to cook the food. That, they, they burned spaghetti in the water. <laughs> it, 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 so I was like, I can't, I can't do that. So you, um, you worked as a waiter while you were doing military Yes, service? well, I started in the kitchen because I said, well, we're going to send you in the kitchen. And on my first day, they do spaghettis for the, for the officers and the general and all. And they have this big cattle, you say? Full of water, they dump the spaghettis and they burn the spaghettis <laughs> in the water. <laughs> Next, next, next book, Spaghetti Simple. <laughs> so then I went to see the general and I said, look, I don't mind to do my military duties. It's okay with me. But you have to take me out of that kitchen. I'm, this I'm is gonna, a war crime. I'm going <laughs> to be depressed. And, and so he laughed and he said, I'm going to send you to the commandos. And I was skinny like that. And I said, the commandos, me? <laughs> and then he laughed. He said, now, do you want to be my waiter? I said, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll love to be your waiter. And I became his... His personal waiter, his personal, personal waiter until the end of the military duties. Oh, that's and a cushy gig. That's a cushy one. <laughs> I gained a lot of weight. <laughs> um, you, I mean, you have this, you have this, this, you grew up, you know, in this, in this very tumultuous house after your father dies. You work for one of the most tumultuous chefs, famously, Joe Robuchon was the whole idea of the French brigade running it like the military. It, you know, he exuded that, that feeling, like, like break a plate over your head type of thing, right? Like, not you specifically, but that has, well, things have, like that have happened, you've seen happen. It was very demanding, let's put it this way. But in, a, in the 80s in France, the culture in the kitchen was very tough. It was a lot of, a lot of verbal abuse, physical abuse. They were punching you in the shoulders. They were slapping you. They were throwing plates at you, kicking you in the butt. Uh, and, and it was um, a reason for that, supposedly, which is stupid. The reason was we take young kids, we're going to break them psychologically, and we're going to rebuild them as champions. Yeah, I, I've seen this movie. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's called Full Metal Jacket. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that, right? Yeah. And... Uh, we lost so much talent uh, during those, those times. But anyway, in the kitchen where I was, the chefs were violent. 
Then when I went to Joel Robuchon at Jamin, he was not physical and he was not a screamer, but he will use ways to really put the knife in your heart. Give me, give me one that still sticks with you. Well, I love to make sauce and, and I always thought I was a great saucier, very humble of me. And, and he knew I love to make sauce. So he would come and test and he would be like, seriously, really? You, you do that? You will never be a saucier. <laughs> and you were like, oh. And like the, the title 32 Yolks comes from your, your obsession that, or that, that to, to perfect the hollandaise sauce. Yes. When, well, my first day in La Tour d'Argent, I'm 17 years old. I walk in that kitchen. It's 30 cooks. They're much older than me. They look at me like I'm a weirdo. And uh, after 30 seconds, I cut my finger. They asked me to cut an onion. I cut my finger. And I asked for a Band-Aid, and they couldn't believe it. Then they asked, then they asked me to go get the Cherville, and I asked what, what it was. And they didn't like it. Um, and then they said, well, make an Hollandaise, Hollandaise sauce. I said, okay. And I kind of knew I need egg yolks. And I said, how many egg yolks? And they said, 32. <laughs> I was skinny like that. 32 yolks, it's a lot. And you have to make a sabayon with it. You have to make a cloud out of it, right? Like in a, in a pan. So of course I made scrambled eggs. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and they were really mad at me. <laughs> <laughs> And you ruined 32 <laughs> eggs. And I, on top of it, um, but it took me about six months to really master the Hollandaise, to make the best sabayon, the lightest and testiest Hollandaise possible. And those 32 yolks in that memoir, which, which we are not selling, by the way. Um, Although it is, it is available. <laughs> oh, yeah. You've already got this one. I'm oh. just saying it makes a nice companion <laughs> oh, piece. Oh, yeah, you have this one. Forget it. Um, but it took me um, ab about six months, and I was, a, that was a turning point in my career. Finally, I was a cook. Finally, I was a line cook in a, in a fine restaurant. Yeah, that's, oh, thank you. Yeah, we can stop on it. Thank you. So I know that we have chefs in the audience today, and an experience like the ones you had could not only turn you off, but make you abusive yourself. It could make you abusive of yourself. We certainly know that that has happened to chefs. They, they fall into, like, kitchens traditionally have been places for, uh, for substance abuse. And you today are a Buddhist. Yes. So what happened? What, how did that come into your life that kept you from going down the other path? Or did you have to go down the other path first? Um, so in the 90s... I started to, to be interested by Buddhism, and I started to read books, and the Dalai Lama in 1989 got the Nobel Prize for Peace, and I read the speech of acceptance from His Holiness, and I, that was, for me, something that was amazing. I couldn't believe what, what he was saying in that speech. It, and still, it stayed with you, that what, it what stayed he, with his me Nobel Prize acceptance speech of the Dalai Lama. For sure. What, that, were there parts of it that, you, that just resonated? Well, Tibet was invaded by China. Very, it was a very brutal in, in invasion in 1959. He had to escape Tibet and they slaughtered the Tibetan people. And in his speech of acceptance, he's forgiving the Chinese uh, 
and and uh, the people who torture his his people and is forgiving uh, his people for fighting the Chinese as well, and he's, uh, he make a plea for compassion and so on. And I'm like, wow! If you kill my family, I'm not gonna have compassion for you. Uh, but that was for me. Um, very inspiring and then I started to read books and that was the beginning of me becoming a Buddhist at the same time uh, almost at the same time in uh, 1991 I walk into the kitchen the kitchen of Le Bernardin and I'm the chef de cuisine because Gilbert Lecoz wants to develop restaurants including uh, Brasserie Lecoz in Miami and then in, one in Atlanta and I'm this young chef I'm 24 and what do I do? I emulate my mentors. So I'm super abusive with the staff. I'm screaming. I'm not, I'm not physical, but I throw plates on the, on the floor. I have my tantrums. And most of the staff wants to leave and starts to leave. And I'm miserable in my life, like really unhappy in my life. And I don't know why. And one night, I'm sitting in my house. Every night I will sit and think about my day. And, and I'm like, it's not possible. You cannot be that miserable. What's happening? And the, I had this duh kind of moment. I was like, well, if you make people miserable around you, you're not going to be happy because your brain cannot be happy and, and angry at the same time. Anger, actually, is not a quality. Anger is a weakness. And I thought anger was actually a quality because anger makes you so strong. And I was cult cultivating that. And the morning after, I went back to Le Bernardin and I said, you know what? I was wrong. We're going to change completely the way we work. And then I had to retrain the sous chefs for a couple of years because they were like, you trained us to be... Assholes. <laughs> you said it. <laughs> and now you're telling us to do the opposite. So they had a bit of a hard time to adapt, but we did it. And, and today, I have to say, Le Bernardin is a place where I believe people are very happy to come and we have a lot of young people, people with more experience, but the idea is, is to bloom and, and not to be stressed and not to be scared. And it makes the life of everybody simple, right? It's like you go to work, you, know, you don't, it's enough stress with the lunch and the dinner time. We have a crunch serving a lot of people at the same time. We don't need to be nasty to each other. We don't need to scare people. And a cook who's shaking like this, as you know, is not going to do a better job than the cook who's like precise like that, right? It, it, it makes sense. So how, how quickly did you start to see, not just did it affect the staff, but when did you, like, how did you see it start to manifest in you? Immediately. Like, it was, well, immediately. I was not as relaxed as I am today, because today I have the position of the guy with the white hair, which is the mentor. <laughs> so it's the, the easy job is the mentor. At the time, I was really in the middle of the line with the guys, and it was, it was very physical and tough. Today, I am in a kitchen, lunch and dinner, like I mentioned previously, with the team, but I'm more like the conductor, and I'm making sure that the team perform properly and we do a good job with the, f the food and the flavors and the rhythm of the, of the service and so on. When, yeah, yeah, we can clap for that. We can clap for that. Thank you. You were, if I'm not mistaken, you were, you, 
you have met the Dalai Lama. And yep. we're, we're with him recently-ish? Yeah, I met... Well, I went to uh, see him in, in India in October to, to say hello to him. <laughs> What's up, Dali? <laughs> I mean... Lali, Lali Dali? I would like to pot. I mean, it's not that simple, but I went, <laughs> I went to say hello and uh, I had an audience with him in October. I was very happy. And um, we cooked for him a couple of times in New York when he was traveling and teaching in, in the U.S. And I met him many times. And uh, he's a great teacher. Uh, I, I go to his teachings when he teaches. And today, of course, with our cell phones, you can have the teaching almost live. He's in India, and I'm here, and I can have it. And through the books, and I also I have a, uh, the luck to have a teacher that is ne is a monk, is Nepali and Tibetan, and he lives in New York. And once a week, we have a we have some um, some teaching together. I um, and I, I want to ask you this because I know folks have known but for years. I, may, oh, yes. If I may, yeah. you always may. Good values are not necessarily related to a religion. It's not related to Buddhism. It's not related to Christianism or to being a Jewish or Muslim or Hindu. It, it doesn't matter. Universal good values are universal. And good is good and bad is bad. And we're all brothers and sisters at the end, right? And that is important to, to remember, if I may. Thank you. When, you, when you embrace a lifestyle like that and you see others who are still trapped in a kind of a different, and, and still trying to do it the old way, which I see we less of, but there's still some of that. Um, and how do you try to reach out? I, I, I didn't want to get too much on this, but you uh, lost your friend Tony, and he, for years, he wrote about it, and even late in life, he still discussed struggling with, with substance uh, and, and, and those demons, you know? I'm just curious, how how you try to re have have you do you, does that open the door for people to try to reach out and as at some point do you find that there's only so much you can do kind of thing? Well, first of all, behaviors in the kitchen in America are much better than in Europe because in America the lawyers are very very <laughs> successful <laughs> and very wealthy, and if you start to throw plates at your employees, <laughs> it's going to cost you a lot of money. <laughs> The kitchens that I know, especially in fine dining, are fairly, civil, fairly civilized. So, of course, sometimes we have some bad days and someone may, may flip a little bit, but nobody's proud of doing that. And uh, when, when someone misbehaves, what is important is after the service, when it's quiet again, it's to apologize to the person on the front of the team and say, hey, listen, I'm sorry I said or I did. And... I apologize, I was wrong. So that's the culture that we have at Le Bernardin, but I, th I think it's, it's starting to spread everywhere. Uh, and um, so misbehaving and, and verbal abuse, it's mostly on reality shows, on certain TV networks. <laughs> I won't say his name. Certain uh, TV chefs. Actually, I'm going to say his name because he should be ashamed of himself. Gordon Ramsay. Uh, I think we're all saying it. Sh shame on Gordon. I mean, you, and, and shame on the, of the, on the production that produced those shows. Violence and abuse. Uh, it, it should, I mean, my generation fought abuse. Why do we promote that again? And as of the 
second part of your question about uh, drugs, basically, or alcohol, or uh, you cannot last in a kitchen or you cannot last in a restaurant if you are drinking or if you are using uh, substance. It's not possible. It's too hard. So you're going to burn in flames. You're not going to last. I mean, not you. <laughs> but well, maybe some of them. Um, some of them. There, I'm sure we have some line cooks and chefs here that would no, need but to hear that. When I speak to young, what sometimes I go to culinary school and I speak also to a young audience and even our, our team, I say, you have to be disciplined. Of course, you can party and, and you're young and, and they, they are in, in their 20s and they want to go out. And, but you have to show up on time. You cannot drink at work. You cannot do substances at work. You cannot do those kind of things. And outside, you should not do it either. Now marijuana is legal, but seriously, I mean, how can you be stoned and cook properly? It's, first of all, you're a liability for others. I mean, it's, you don't even know what you are doing. You're not precise. So it's, it's something that, um, obviously, it's a no-no in our world. And you were mentioning Tony. Tony was uh, struggling when he was young with uh, uh, drugs and alcohol. But uh, when Tony was out of the kitchen when he, in, in 2000, when he wrote Kitchen Confidential, he was clean and he was uh, not, use, not uh, using uh, drugs, uh, neither uh, drinking uh, too much and so on. He was, of course, enjoying a bottle of wine like I do, but um, uh, Tony was clean. And he was a big advocate also of, uh, of promoting that kind of attitude and culture. Even, even losing him, you know, it's hard to look back on them. But how did, how did he change your life? Because I read Jose Andres saying that even in losing him, that was something about that that brought you guys together. Jose Andres, another, you know, a Spanish guy, background is similar. Um, your friend. How did, how did he influence your life even and maybe even still influences today? And, I don't think we influ influence each other's lives. I think we were very different. Um, but we had a very solid friendship. And um, we accept our differences. And what I when I was speaking about the Dalai Lama, he would be like... <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, and when he was um, listening to the Ramones or whatever kind of music he was listening, I was like... What is that awful noise? <laughs> so we, we, we didn't really influence each other, but we had a good time together um, off camera and spending vacations and of course on camera and people could see that when we were on, on TV together. Well, I could keep you here for another hour or two, but, and I know I'm keeping you all to myself, but I want to open it up. But first to say thank you, Chef. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We have some questions. This gentleman up here was quickly rose. I'm just going to give him my microphone. Hello. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Um, have you seen the bear? And yeah. And the reason I ask is because it seems like that was an attempt to show a change from the old culture to the more uh, uh, forgiving or a, a collegial culture that you've talked about. I have seen the bear. I saw the menu, too. <laughs> Ooh, yes. So I cannot relate to the stupidity of the of the menu. I mean, the menu is a great movie, it's a satire, and it's making fun of certain aspects of my industry. And um, 
I cannot relate to those those stupid things. <laughs> But I like the movie. You don't Now, want to set fire to the whole restaurant and everybody in it. <laughs> did, I ruin, did I spoil the movie? Sorry. Yeah, that's a spoiler. But um, I think the in the bear the acting is fantastic. Fantastic. I have a hard time to connect with the story. Uh, to me, it's a little bit surreal. But maybe it happens in in restaurants. I don't know. Um, I am on season two, <laughs> and uh, I I loved I love uh, Jeremy the actor. The man is uh, is fantastic. But um, I it's hard for me to to watch it. it. I think it's. It reminds me the office a little bit. <laughs> how do you how do you support your staff and 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 have this uh, kind of tireless energy to keep going to events, whether they're in the Cayman or uh, Cayman Islands or wherever it is, to to support uh, your chefs and your friend chef friends? Well, when you are in a position of leadership, it's a privilege, but it's also an obligation to give back, and people work hard. So you mentioned the Cayman cookout. People People work hard in that event, but in in our restaurant, the employees work really hard, and they need someone who's going to give them guidance. They need someone who's going to uh, help them to grow and bloom. And uh, for me, it's part of my life. I wake up in the morning and I'm thinking about my day, and I'm there for that. Um, so I have. No stress whatsoever. I have a good organization. A lot of people around me, uh, making sure that I show up at the right place at the right moment. And uh, and well, yeah. But it's it's you know when when you are in in my position, you have to create a team, and you create a team with talented people that are loyal, and they are loyal because you inspire them. If you don't inspire those people, they're going somewhere else. And uh, this is the obligation that um, chefs and people in position of leadership have to toward their staff and team that support them. You had a question, sir. What is the most difficult fish to cook? It's not really a. Uh, I mean, in seafood simple. Thirty-four <laughs> ninety-nine at your local bookstore, <laughs> like books and books. I know you bought the book, but. Um, I basically make the case that every fish is fairly simple to cook. You have to apply the right technique for the right fish. Like tuna is very different than halibut, which is very different than, than lobster, right? So tuna, maybe you will, if you grill it or you broil, you, not broil it, but grill it or sear it, you may have, or maybe or serve it raw, it could be enhancing the, the qualities of the, the fish and make it the star of the plate. It may be not the case for codfish. Codfish may not be like to be cut raw, and uh, maybe codfish or halibut, which is very very um, delicate, may not like to be seared. Uh, you may want to steam it and and be more gentle in the cooking. So it's about understanding the the every species and about applying the technique that goes to to elevate that species. And in the book, it's why we have those chapters with in every chapter a different family of seafood. Give us your thoughts on sustainability and the kinds of uh, fish and procedures that we should be aware of now to, to keep it sustainable. So sustainability, as we know, is key. And uh, sustainability everywhere on Earth uh, and, of course, in the ocean. And 
I am optimistic, but we have to be very cautious. Wild fish taste much better than farm-raised fish. Today, farm-raised fish doesn't, doesn't equal the, the delicacy of a wild fish. It's many reasons. Uh, wild fish in ocean can be plentiful if the stocks are well managed. But if we are not cautious and we overfish and we overdevelop the coastline and we pollute the water and so on, we are going to lose a lot of species. Uh, so what's happening, actually in America, we're very lucky because the government is very proactive and very tough. And we have some success story, and I'll give you one. The striped bass on the East Coast, no, on the north, north, northern part of the East Coast, in the 90s was dis almost extinct. And the government came on and said, we're going to stop for a couple of years to catch striped bass. And the fishermen were very, very upset because it's hard to say to a fisherman who has a boat and is specialized in, in catching striped bass, you're not going to go fishing. Uh, but the government was tough. And today, the striped bass is plentiful. Then, in the late 90s, almost in the uh, 2000, the swordfish were becoming smaller and smaller and smaller until we realized the stock was under stress and we had some very strict rules to protect the species. Today, swordfish is, again, large and plentiful. And we had problems with the Chilean sea bass, which the real name is Patagonian toothfish. Nobody wants to eat Patagonian toothfish. <laughs> but Chilean sea bass was a genius marketing name that destroyed the species almost. But again, we made a lot of effort to... Um, to be careful, and, the, and, the, and the, now the population is coming back. Today we have um, the salmon in Alaska and on the West Coast. The wild salmon is under stress, especially the king salmon. So we have to give a break. We have to be also be pr uh, very proactive in protecting uh, the way the water is uh, used over there with the pollution and, and so on. Uh, farm raise sometimes although it's not as good as wild, can, uh, some farmers have good practices and they do not pollute the land and they do not, they do not pollute the, the water uh, and, and so on. But very often, uh, those farmers, they feed the, the fish some poor quality food. They give them uh, antibiotics. It's millions of fish in a room like that. Uh, and, and therefore, it means you have to do a little bit of research. And uh, what guides us today in the U.S., it's uh, many organizations, but the Monterey Bay Aquarium publish every year a list of the species that are disappearing and the, 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 the species that are recovering. And then you have NOAA. And NOAA is a government, governmental agency that has also a list that is very accurate. And you can follow those lists. You, you Google it and, and you know what to consume. For the farms, is a bit more nebulous. Um, for the salmon, I will say, since Atlantic salmon doesn't exist anymore for a long time, it has disappeared and never really recovered, I recommend if you can buy uh, salmon from the Faroe Islands. Faroe Islands are located in between Iceland and Scotland, and they have amazing practices, and the fish is almost uh, at the level of being wild. 
Thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Eric Repair. <laughs>